This is the Blueprint Podcast, bringing you the latest in cyber defense and security operations from top blue team leaders. Blueprint is brought to you by the SANS Institute and is hosted by SANS Senior Instructor, John Hubbard. And now, here's your host, John Hubbard. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Blueprint Podcast. I'm your host, John Hubbard. Uh, Today, we have a very special bonus episode. Uh, After going through the entire book of MITRE's 11 Strategies of a World-Class Cybersecurity Operations Center, our authors, Ingrid, Carson, and Catherine, are back for one final episode where we're going to talk about uh, the process of writing a book, an InfoSec book, and what it takes and all the kind of... uh, tricky parts and the fun parts and the results and getting it done and all the kind of interesting things that go along with it. So uh, with that, welcome to you all. Thank you for coming back and joining me. It's good to be back. So Carson, let's start with you. Uh, Since you were the kind of creator of the first edition of this book, could you kick us off telling us a little bit about where did the idea for writing a book come from? Why a book versus any other kind of medium or format? And uh, what were you kind of thinking in the very beginning of this? Uh, it's it's a great question, and it'll sp- spur a long story that will wind through, you know, a bunch of different aspects of why I write a book and what to think about this, um, you know, uh, picture it, the year. It was, it was 2010 or so, and I and a number of other people I worked with at MITRE um, some every day, you know who you are. I won't, I won't name names in this podcast to protect the innocent, but you know who you are and, and I loved working with you. We talked about what we did and how we did it in security operations to a lot of other folks. And the same questions kept, kept coming up. Uh, and it's the questions people still ask to this day. And it was everything from... How many analysts do you need? What data do you collect? Uh, how you set up a SOC for success, organizationally and otherwise. It, and really, it was all the things that we talked about through the webcast. And I started looking around. I thought back to some of the first things that I read uh, when I was an intern uh, at MITRE. And... And I, I surveyed and I looked around. I looked, you know, I remember the, the very first book on intrusion detection I read by Northcutt or uh, the wonderful materials done by um, uh, uh, CERT CC they were at the time, uh, you know, the handbook for CERTs. And uh, I read a book by Richard Beeklick, uh, The Tau of Network Security Monitoring, and, and a couple of references. In fact, in total, I think I read like a couple thousand pages on the material and I said, I don't think there's enough written down about to answer these questions. Some people have written some about it. And then there's some stuff out there that's just wrong, um, like just plain wrong. Some consultancy firms had published certain attempted to answer some of those questions. And and I talked to a lot of the people I work with and I'm like, no, no, this is not right. So originally I was like, I should do a set of frequently asked questions about security operations. And I just started writing down, you know, the things that came to mind about the different practices in this area. And you can think about it like a, 
uh, uh, how a solar system forms, right? It starts as this ball of dust and gas in, in the middle of space and it has no form and it's totally random. And that's, and that's how it started. And, and, and as I went on, um, cause you know, you start with a blank sheet and, and this is actually one of the ways to approach how to write a book is, well, where do you get started? And, and I took probably the wrong approach and that was write random thoughts down and see how they're related and 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 where I thought we were going to get was is oh we're just going to have this fact we're going to call it the sock fact frequently asked questions and it's and it's going to be all about you know the questions and we're just going to leave it at that and as new questions come up we're going to write down more answers and and life's going to be grand and then you know uh, one of the folks I work with uh, and a couple of folks I worked for were like nah this should be a book and at this point you know miter. Uh, again, a corporation that operates multiple, multiple FFRDCs working in the public interest. You know, I had gotten um, funding to do this in my copious amounts of spare time, not working in the sock. And, and some of them were like, you should do a book. And I'm like, yeah, I should do a book. That sounds great. And um, by the time we were done and we'll go through, you know, today we'll go through, what does it take to write a book start to finish? It had been a thousand hours. Um, and, and it actually had been slightly less than that, but it was about a thousand hours. And I later learned, I'm like, it takes about a thousand hours to write a book. And the, so the motivation for doing that, um, was getting this knowledge that I and my, my many colleagues at MITRE had accumulated into something that the people we talked to, uh, could consume. And initially that was MITRE's customers. And it ended up being like hundreds of other organizations and it completely blew us away. Um, and there's a bunch of other things we can talk today about, like, you know, how do you think about your audience and how do you think about who you want to reach and how you want to engage with them and, and all that fun stuff. So, you know, if I had to do it all over again, I have a lot of thoughts to offer Carson of 2010. And I think that's, that's one of the reasons why I've assembled into this episode. I could go on, but I don't think I should yet. <laughs> yeah. So um, I'll just add on some Carson advice that he gave to me because I've actually always wanted to write a book. Um, I, from the time I was little, people told me I could write. And, uh, so, uh, and I even wrote little books, you know, when I was little. Um, but when Carson was going through this process at MITRE, I was also there and I asked him, I said, so if someone's getting started in writing a book, Carson, what would you advise them for getting started? And he gave me some excellent advice. I don't know that he followed it. What he just described is definitely not, is the opposite of what he told me. <laughs> don't, do, which is, don't do what I did. <laughs> don't write down random thoughts. He said, start one chapter at a time. So basically write uh, each thing like it's a, its own paper, its own, um, you know, consumable thing that you can publish in discrete things and then actually go through the process for each chapter as you go along editing and other things so that by the time you've assembled 11 or 12 or 13 chapters or whatever it is, um, you've kind of gone along on the process. So I think that was excellent, Carson. Oh, thanks. Maybe I'll re remember that if I decide to write a book ever again. Yeah. <laughs> so it's a dream come true for you, Catherine. It is. Absolutely. And I don't know that this is, I think there'll be more because I don't know exactly. if there'll be the same, you know, security operations kinds of things, but uh, I do like to write. Yes. Fantastic. So for, for those out there in the listening audience or watching audience um, who might be thinking about the same thing, uh, any kind of initial thoughts come to mind on if someone is on that precipice of like, hmm, maybe I should write a book. <laughs> 
the first thing you want to say is, really? Are you sure you want to write a book? Um, you have to really want a book. Um, it is a lot of work. And, you know, I think Carson mentioned a thousand hours. Uh, it, it wasn't divided by three for the three authors. That wasn't like 300 hours each. It was close to a thousand hours probably each, um, yeah. you know, in all of the stuff that we did to to put this thing together. Yeah. So, and that's a good point of clarification here is Carson was referring to the first edition, which was put together in 2010, Right. you know, and, and then eventually wasn't the published date like 2014 though? 2014, right. Yeah, it was 2014. Yeah. Which gives you an idea of how long they take. Um, and then the three people here worked on the second edition and I was um, part of the original team that was putting together, okay, you know, what do we want to put in for a proposal to MITRE for a second edition? How long do we think it's going to take? And we were doing a second edition. And we thought, oh, it would just be a few light updates. Um, ah, and ah, ah, Sorry. Yeah. Uh, cybersecurity changes a lot uh, over the years. So we had to do some things. I had no intention of writing the book. I <laughs> was not originally going to be part of the team. And just as we've um, started thinking about, you know, who was going to be involved, how we were going to do this, it was like, yeah, you know what, I've okay, yeah, I've worked in a lot of socks and I have opinions and I've got some thoughts and I could jump in and do some stuff. Um, I had no idea how much work it was going to be. Um, you know, for, so we happened to be doing this during COVID as well. So there was just a lot of flux in our personal lives, in our work situations, in expectations of, you know, do we have time? Do we not have time? Where are we going to go? But it took us nearly three years um, to to go from the starting idea of, hey, we should do a second edition to actually putting it out. And it was um, a lot of nights, a lot of weekends. I think all of us put dedications up front to our significant others in our lives, thanking them for the time, because it really is um, something you have to spend the time on. And And as we discovered with three of us, there's the time it would take you to personally do it. And then there's the time it takes you to collaborate and to work with other people and to do the back and forth and to disagree and politely disagree and then not so politely disagree. And then to go back to being friends. Um, and so I think, um, you know, there's just a lot to think about if you are considering doing a book in terms of, um, is this the right format for you? Is this, why are you even doing it? Like what, for all of us, it was, we wanted to put something back out into the community. I mean, it's part of the reason that it was free. It's the reason we enjoyed doing it with MITRE. It's why we went with this particular format that um, I had one sponsor when they heard we were doing a second edition said, make it thick enough that I can, you know, bonk somebody on the head with it, but not so thick it's going to hurt. <laughs> um, you know, so we, we had some goals goals with this, but really think about what your goals are for a book versus other formats. You know, um, we had never planned to do a podcast, but this is, you know, John gave us this amazing platform to, to do the podcast. Um, Thank you, Sam. Thank you, John. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> so, yeah, there's just a lot of ways you can put information out. And so really thinking about, is this the right format? And, and do you have a year or more to dedicate to doing something? Or do you need to do it a little bit more quickly? So yeah. And, and I would add to the motivations, um, make sure it's not about money. If you're writing a technical book, um, I got that advice probably 15, 20 years ago when I asked, I, I worked with several authors at one of my previous employers and you don't make money on a technical, um, book most of the time, not a lot of money, not like real money, capital M, um, you know, so, and this person had written the textbook that was used in 30 countries, several different languages, 
many, many colleges for doing Excel at the time. So he said, he told me how much he made off of the book. And I was like, oh, okay. So he said, so you don't do it for the money, which made this easy to say, yep, we don't want to make money off of this book. And we're giving back, we're truly giving back to the community. And that helped my romantic notion of writing a book. It's like, oh yes, I'm giving back. That's why I'm doing this. <laughs> so it helped it along in those tough hours when, when Carson and I are, we're arguing over something. <laughs> Just kidding, Carson. Um, I, I have, I have a, I have a bunch of points I want to expand on from what uh, Catherine uh, said. I think uh, succinctly, the the romance and novelty pun intended you're welcome of uh, writing a book uh wears off well before the book is published um <laughs> and the for me and i suspect others it actually becomes the most challenging when you're like okay i've got a complete manuscript we even like its order and its format and its scope and then you descend into editing which we'll talk about later <laughs> Um, which is its own fun. Um, so, you know, for, for me in the first edition, and I think for us in the second edition, um, again, let's bring it back to what is your intent and who are you trying to reach? And, um, we knew that we had a lot of people out there. I did in the first edition and we did in the second edition, didn't realize how many, um, in the first edition of audience who I wanted to communicate with about how to do this better. And that was pure, that was truly my motivation. In the first edition, I think that carried through. Um, and and MITRE is a, a corporation, you know, a not-for-profit that operates FFRDCs in the public interest. Um, giving away a book like this is entirely consistent, um, at least, you know, in, in our judgment when we originally released it, you know, with that, right, is, is you know, let's, let's get this knowledge back out to the people who can go and do brilliant things with it. And there's been... Mm, I think I've lost track of the number of times. It's certainly not hundreds, but it's not just a dozen either where in the last 10 years or so, people have come to me and said, you know, Carson, thank you. You know, this book served as our blueprint, pun intended, uh, as, <laughs> as, as the way we structured our sock. And I'm like, that's so cool. Cause that was what, you know, we had in mind. Um, so again, examine your motivation, examine how, who you're trying to reach and think about ways you can reach them. Um, going, writing a book is like kind of going, if you haven't written a blog or written short papers or written articles um, or written an entire chapter, it's kind of like saying, I'd like to take up hiking. And then my first place I'm going to hike is going to be K2. And like, maybe <laughs> you should reconsider what your first uh, attempt is going to be. <laughs> yeah, that is fair. I started publishing some articles um, a few years back, not thinking I was, I, I actually was brought in late to this process. So, um, you know, I didn't know I was going to get to be a part of this. So I was publishing blogs and, and a few other things just to kind of dip my toe in the water and see what I thought. Um, with the motivation, um, part of my motivation that really comes back to me each time I think about this, when I was in those tough times was about um, not just giving back, but that people would build on the knowledge we have. One of my frustrations in this field, uh, having been in it for, for as long as I have, is that we really haven't handed off the knowledge and built on it in a way that's um, more exponential. 
Uh, yes, we are doing things a little differently here and there, but there is foundational knowledge that should be out there that everybody should just know if you're getting into this field. A lot of it's in this book um, and all the references and resources that we provided in the book. But I, my true frustration is in that I want to see us do a lot better um, and grow and do it differently and better. <laughs> yeah, I'll give you one. Why? Let me give you one lessons learned and then I'll, I'll let, you know, let someone else talk for a while, Ingrid. <laughs> um, so the whack-a-mole thing, I don't know if others know this one, but, uh, you know, over the years, you every once in a while, I come across an organization that has something bad happening from an IP address or something like an IP address and they block it. And that's the answer. That is definitely not the way to do security operations. So that's when I say, please read the book, you know, (laughs) Ingrid, I'm sorry, go ahead. And this builds on that, which is, you know, so we've talked about writing a book is hard. Think about whether this is the right format, but to talk about why we felt this was the right format, it's because a book has a set of gravitas to it that is a, and, and a set of permanence to it that is a little bit different than writing an article, writing a blog post, putting something out that, you know, there's a lot of material that comes out every day. We all know we have to read constantly to try and stay up with everything. The book has a level of permanence to it that we observed with Carson's first edition. Like people held on to it. They went back, they referenced it, even when it started to become more out of date. Um, there was still evergreen content in there. There were still things that people would go back to and point out to. And that's what we wanted to do with the second edition too. Cause we did start some of the early discussions of, should we even do a book? Should we just do, you know, a set of blog posts? Should we do some updates? You know, what's the right format? Um, but we really did feel like with a book, you get something that people can hold on to, you know, whether that is physically or virtually now and go back and look at, and it's, and you can tell a longer story with it. You know, because if you are doing things as in even a series of blog posts or something else, you're often capped with how long will people sit down and look at something? Do they reference it? Do they look at it the same way? With a book, it's we we never anticipated anybody reading this start to finish. Um, if you do, that's amazing. Please let us know. Um, but we kind of viewed it as you might dive in, you might say, oh, this is interesting. That's interesting. But if you did read it start to finish, you'd kind of get a story that builds on each other. So it's just it's a different storytelling format. Um, that can play really well into certain ideas. So as hard as it was, it felt like this was a really good format for what we wanted to to share. And so as Catherine was saying, you know, we had, we really did think this was going to be a bunch of light edits, but we learned that uh, cybersecurity changes really fast and there's a whole bunch of stuff to talk about. And we tried really hard to just say, oh yeah, here's, you know, five different topics. We want to talk about cloud and we want to talk about this. And then we're like, yeah, but we want to talk about the business and oh, threat intelligence is different. And, oh, where are we going to put hunting and deception? And then the next thing you know, we've got this whole whiteboard of ideas and we're drawing lines between everything. And we're like, okay, so we're just going to reorganize a little bit. And then that turned into, yeah, oh, okay, we're reorganizing the whole thing. And- um and then adding a chapter. So and, and uh, book, for anybody who's wondering, was, yeah, 10 editions did not become 11 because we added a chapter. It became 11 because we just had so many things that we threw everything up and tried again. The book And the book was better for it, right? And this actually gets back to why I mentioned the story of why the first edition came to be is originally it was sort of like, well, we went from like, ah, 23, 24 frequently asked questions and answers to, um, you know, 10 strategies. And to an extent, it was sort of like arbitrary. And this is one of the things 
the I would advise the audience to think about is is like when you write a book, you're taking some amorphous blob of information and you're linearizing it. And there's a lot of different t- ways to take any blob of information and turn it into linear form. And that was actually where a bunch of our conversations um, doing second edition came up was this. Okay, so like, where do we put blah? And what do we do about blah? And and it was it was really fascinating. And one of my biggest pieces of advice to the audience is if you're going to write a book and and like, honest to goodness, you've actually decided the book is the right vehicle. I hope it's not. Don't write a book. Just kidding. Um, is you need input from someone who is invested in understanding your material thoroughly early on about the structure and scope of the material you are delivering. You have got to get clarity on that structure and scope early on, because as then you start producing material, you're going to start taking dependencies on the different part of the material. And if you screw up that structure early on or have to restructure later, oh, brother, you're in for trouble because it's going gonna, it's gonna to cause a lot of rewrite and a lot of re-edit. So it, then, it sounds a little bit like you had the, still had a little bit of the solar system method of like throw it all on the board, figure out how to connect it, and then still kind of turn it into a coherent bundle of, of chapters, right? So Absolutely. And the good part was we had so much of the original material that we're like, you know, if you look at, if you go do a comparison, there are parts of that material that we pretty much lifted. Um, Borrowed liberally from Carson's first edition, uh, or stole. Some of it uh, didn't need to change, and some of it are thinking. Yeah. Are thinking changed, or the industry or the tech changed? Yep. Or were things that you know Carson had even acknowledged he had either thought about and just didn't have time, you know, or space to put into the first edition, or you know, were just new ideas that we were all coming up with, and that speaks to uh, you know having three people work on this um, felt like a really good number. Like it was enough that we were bringing in new ideas and we had some different perspectives and we've had different experiences within socks, but it wasn't so many that we couldn't get to an agreement. And one of the things that we did was each strategy had somebody that was leading it, you know, so, and then that person was responsible for first set of content, putting, you know, ideas in, shepherding new ideas coming in from others, working it forward. And, and we bounced around and sometimes we would hand off chapters and people would have different um, ownership for it. So it was, it was still very collaborative. I've seen some books where authors will like, Hey, this is my chapter. I did this. This is the thing I did. I mean, there's no question. We were all in each other's business during all of this, <laughs> <laughs> but we did try and have um, somebody that owned a, owned a chapter, somebody that was responsible for carrying it forward and, um, you know, and, and put a little bit of, of structure in it that way, even as we were all trying to bring in these new creative ideas and figure out what was happening. And we, because of that, we did towards the end of the book, find that there were things that were either duplicative or um, would be better served being in a different strategy. And so we did have to do a pass at the end where we were like lifting sections and moving them around a little bit to again, get that streamline going. So something to think about is, do you want to have co-authors? Um, if you do, make sure that you like them. You don't have to agree with them, but you do need to like yeah, them. respect them. I think. Yeah, yeah. Re- respect is the is the key piece. Um, understanding, you know, going into uh, a book with co-authors, there's a, there's a bunch of things to think about 
among them, you know, different people have different motivations for writing a book. And there's no question that the notoriety and prestige that one perceives that they will get from writing a book, assuming it's a good one, um, is a big piece of that. Um, however, you should also, I would advise, um, think back to some of the project work you did when you were in high school and college and and be thoughtful that, you know, you're writing something that is going to ultimately become, you know, part of you and part of your personal brand and and the brand of anyone or any company who attaches themselves to the book. So one of the things to think about there is, is like, don't just commit with people who you've never seen their their writing style before or heard them speak or heard them talk articulately about this project. Like, understand the people you're going in with. Um, and I make this comment, um, you know, generally, because um, that's a big that's a big commitment. And you want to make sure that you're on board with people you might have vigorous debates with, you might disagree with, but, you know, establish that you can kind of come to that positive outcome and that, you know, you feel like everybody has contributed. And, and that actually is an interesting dovetail into one of the things, um, you know, we we chose through the process of getting the book out the door um, not to put our names on specific chapters. I think part of that was is we had our fingerprints all over everything, all of us. Um and our names are listed in alphabetical order on the front. Yeah. Um, and that was that was deliberate. Catherine, did you want to talk about that? Uh, yeah. So, uh, I mean, I think you just said it. Uh, it is alphabetical. I think every one of us touched every word in that book. So there really isn't a way to distinguish that someone um, provided more content than the others. I certainly didn't provide more content than the others. It is completely alphabetical. And that was the only way we could think to list, you know, us on those. I think it was important to put the names on there. Um, but uh, yeah, but we touched, I think, wouldn't you say we all touched every single word in that thing? No. Yeah, even the stuff, you know, like we mentioned, that there was a good bit of content that we looked at from Carson's first edition and tried to figure out like, okay, is this the right thing? Can we just carry it forward? But even then we were critically reading it, considering whether that was the right tone, the right language. Um, some of the way you speak about things has changed over the years. Um, Carson's own voice has changed over the years. That sure has. Uh, and yeah. sometimes you would go in and say, oh my goodness, what? I can't do it with the Carson voice, but it's like, why did I write this? What was I thinking? Carson is sometimes a little more casual than some of the rest of us. So, you yeah. know, in his uh, language and, and how he talks, his um, anecdotes uh, can be. So uh, voice was another thing I wanted to bring up. Um, you, uh, I know now that I have a very strong voice and I started working on that voice during the blogs. So when you come into a situation like this, you need to know what your voice is up front. Now, blending three voices together, uh, three strong voices together um, in a book is, is an interesting um, exercise. And I think Ingrid, that was her strength in bringing us together um, through organizing and, and, and the way things she would point out when we didn't quite sound like we were on the same page from a voice standpoint. Um, I speak a little more formally maybe than Carson does, but we, you know, Carson is fun. So we didn't want to lose all the fun that Carson had. I think, I think that's well put Catherine. Um, I, I wanted to tangent for a second, um, John off the, one of the questions you asked before we get to the end of this, uh, I wanted to return to the economics of writing a book. Um, and I love the example, by the way, about the Excel book 
that was used in what, 30 countries? Yeah, 30 countries. And the other, I forgot to mention this part of it. What he said to me is, think about it, a technical book, the audience for a technical book compared to like, I don't know, uh, a Grisham novel or, you know, these big authors, Stephen King, these giant authors that make money off of their books and can live off of it. He said, think about that, the audience for a technical book and within a technical book, a cybersecurity book in particular is less than 10% of the the reading audience. And I was like, ooh, that hit home for me. <laughs> and, it, and it's funny you mentioned that because I received a very similar piece of advice or a very harmonious piece of advice. Um, and it's a really good way to put this uh, into numbers. And I don't know where these numbers come from. So like, this is now third hand. No, me neither. I wouldn't call yeah, yeah. them, but that's, um, you know, rule of thumb. The, the the rule of thumb that was given to me is, is, is it is rare for a technical book to exceed 10,000 copies. Um, and that if you have written a technical book and, and you have sold 10,000 copies of that, you are considered, quote unquote, successful. Interesting. And then I was further informed. Again, this all might be wrong. So don't don't quote me um, that the author of a technical book typically gets somewhere around 10 percent of the cover price. All right. Let's use 2023 numbers here for a moment. Imagine you have, in fact, uh, uh, hit that threshold. Exactly. 10,000 copies at forty dollars a copy. That's hold on, mine at home, but only ten percent of that. That's what forty grand U.S. for a thousand hours of your time. Hold on, I'm doing more math. That's wrong. Four. Uh, that's forty dollars yeah. an hour. Uh, so you're not, you know, you're not making money on this um, generally. Yeah. yeah. Thanks for circling back. So that that's uh, exactly. So better to just donate the money. Right. So uh, we've said it before and we'll say it again, but, you know, the 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 book was given away on purpose uh, to reach the wa- widest possible audience. I think we succeeded in that regard. Um, when you uh, download the book on a major reseller or order the print on demand copy, um, neither us nor MITRE see any of that money. Oh, and Carson, that is an excellent segue into, so how do you get from ideas to an actual published book? Oh, let's do it. (laughs) Because that is not an easy thing. As you brought up earlier, like you can do all of this. You can have your 500 pages, whatever you've got. You think it's wonderful. Um, I would recommend working with an editor as you're going along. And something to keep in mind is there's all kinds of different editing that goes on. There's, uh, Catherine brought up earlier that we you know, I, I did some of the structural editing, which is one of the things that you need to do. But you also need to do and go in and have kind of a flow within the the content editing. And then you get into the actual line editing and the, hey, is your punctuation correct? Did you use the right, you know, um, tense, all of those types of things. And then there's editing later on that goes to, okay, once you've laid out the book, did everything land where it was supposed to? And what do the pages look like? And so just keeping in mind that there's, it's not as simple as saying, oh yeah, we just need to get an editor. You have to think about the different types of editors that you want. Um, also keep in mind that because if you're doing a technical book, um, does not mean you need to have a technical editor who knows your field, but you need to work with them really closely to help them understand what is typical within your language. Um, and we did that with, you know, we, with one of our editors where 
they had made some edits and we didn't have them edit everything. We had them start with something that was smaller. And then we had a conversation about why we chose the language that we did or why um, something was capitalized the way it was or something else to help them understand the technical space so that then they weren't going through and trying to make all of these edits that were not relevant to the kind of material that we were sending out. Um, so that was a real, the editing process was really interesting and educational. Like I've worked with a lot of editors, but again, they've been on shorter products. Um, and a lot of time my editors have been um, people who've known the technical space. They've worked with it before. And this time we were working with somebody um, who didn't have that same background. So just a lot of things you have to go through and make sure that you're kind of up to date. Um, you can, uh, in our case, you know, MITRE had some editing resources that we could use, but we also learned that there are companies out there. So, um, we ended up using a, um, external company to help us with, um, some final layout and some other pieces and learned that they, there's lots of resources out there, um, that aren't terribly expensive for you to be able to go out and, and get different editors. And I know Catherine can speak to a lot of this because she spent a lot of time on the phone. I spent a lot of time on, uh, yeah, actually that's a lessons learned that, that I got. Um, there are things like in our book, uh, how many resource, how many resources did we list in the back? How many references? Well, 500. Yeah. yeah. When you have 519 uh, references or something to that nature, it's good to think about it ahead of time of just using one particular format rather than we were kind of just doing it in various, we had three different ways, as you might imagine, of, of capturing references. And so one version of the editing toward the end was to go through all those references. Um, you can actually pay companies to do it and they aren't that costly. It might have been worth it in our case to just go hire that done. Uh, rather than trying to do things ourselves or trying to do it through, um, you know, just nickel and diming ourselves to death on um, doing the references. But yeah, that was that was something else. The other thing is that uh, some of the editors wanted us to wait until we had a whole book. Uh, I, if you, if you can back to Carson's advice to me, if, if you can find editors that are good with piecemealing, that way you're not handing this big 472 page thing to someone to start from scratch. Cause that's daunting. Um, or it, it needs to be an editor who works with books all the time and already understands that. It, it's all, it's also daunting that again, we're going to, it's like three authors are here to tell you to not write a book today. Um, it's also daunting when you think about, uh, updating the work. Um, and, um, you know, you've heard us already talk about how the very deliberate choices we made, not just in content and in scope, but reorganization and retailing of message and whatnot of that. It's when, when you produce a four or 500 page work, um, you know, it becomes a big deal to update that. And that's one of the reasons why, you know, depending on how you present the material, you might think about chunkifying that or breaking that up in a way um, that that enables you to update it. Maybe you need to think about um, a format that can be democratized. Um, and this actually goes back into one of the points Ingrid made. Um, Ingrid, you forgot technical edit. And when I say technical edit, I mean bringing to bear diverse perspectives on um, on whatever it is we're writing down. This is one of the things that that I had to a limited degree when I was writing on the first, excuse me, working on the first edition was... You know, I needed people to tell me if like my definitions were like, do you, is this right? Like, I mean, saying the right thing, like, is this, is this consensus or am I hallucinating? And one of the biggest uh, virtues of having 
a book uh, where you have multiple core authors um, is that you have people who are committed to making those calls or having those arguments. And they're both wonderful to have. And we actually did some technical editing. So thanks for bringing that up. We had, uh, you know, there's a bunch of people at MITRE, thankfully, that were very happy to read for us and, and give us comments. Yeah. And take a look in the acknowledgement section and you'll see names of everybody, you know, that w- was part of it. But that's a, that's a great point, Carson, is that before we even got to any of that final stuff, we just we would take some some drafts and some of them were rough and they would they were just dive in. <laughs> they, they would dive in and go, uh, what do you mean? What were you thinking? I disagree with you. Here's my experience. I think, you know, and so they were very candid with us, which is really important. That- oh, yeah. That- also, you have to have a thick skin if you're going to write a book. Let me oh, just tell you. Yeah. <laughs> thick skin is good <laughs> what kind of pushback have you got uh based on content or otherwise that makes you say oh yeah pre, pre or post publication john yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh, start with all of them <laughs> well, yeah well during during the editing right. yeah i'll start um during the editing uh with within it before it was published um we certainly got uh some very candid remarks from people who who knew what they were talking about and weren't wrong necessarily we had to go back and make calls with the three of us to say okay do we override this thing do we rewrite it do we throw the whole thing away and start over because there was a couple comments like that this is just totally confusing i don't understand any of it you know so um yeah (laughs) there's an after publish or unless there's more well i was just gonna say one of the things about about the people who were commenting for us is they had all worked in socks. They'd all yeah. worked in multiple socks. They all knew what they were doing. Yeah. And it was so interesting that their comments were like, well, I've never seen this before, mm-hmm. or that hasn't been my experience, or I think we should do it this way. And that came into a lot of the fact that running us, there's not a single best way to run a sock. Um, and it's got to be contextual to your organization and what you're trying to do and the number of people you have and the budget you have and how much risk tolerance you have and all the other things. And so, as Catherine was saying, we had to say, okay, that is another voice that comes in. Mm-hmm. What do we think the, honestly, the most common denominator is that we can speak to? And so, you know, sometimes you might read the book and say, that's not what I've seen. That's not been my experience. And that, doesn't mean your experience is wrong. It just means it's different than ours and the people who provided input into us. Yeah, and I, there's there's a bunch of things. I'm sorry, I'm thinking about you know behaviors for inclusion right now. One of the big pieces for this was establishing com- a common understanding of like when somebody says, "Oh, that's totally wrong." Okay, like tell me about the context and scope and situation and dependencies and all the other things. I'm like, what made you make that remark? And and it very much goes back to what Ingrid was just talking about is, is, is people are going to come to the table. And they're going to be opinionated. I know there's no one in, in the technology, let alone cybersecurity field, who are opinionated about what's right and what's wrong. So, you know, I think that's one of the one of the things to really seek out. But in doing so, um, you know, use those behaviors so that you actually understand the root of why are people holding a really strong opinion about stuff. Yeah. So you had to kind of dig in and, and make the tough call on, is this a valid comment? Are we going to make a major change, a minor change, no change at all, and kind of live with, I hope it, it turns out in the right direction and um, try to walk the line of like the, the majority experience, right? And I think that's anyone making any product is like, 
what's the niche that this is for? Like, we'd love it for apply to anyone, right? That's true of classes. That's true of TV shows. That's true of books and everything. But it's like, ultimately it is, you know, there's one best person for that. And so um, maybe that's a question. It's like, was there an organization size and organization industry that you were thinking of in your head as like a target market for this? Oh, that's interesting. Oh, and, and it was oh, very purposeful. Great question. Yep. Um, because all of us at that point, and even now, you know, with where Carson's gone and whatever, we're coming out of more government and enterprise level experiences. And we recognized we had a bias for that. And we were trying really hard to to learn and to think about what this could mean for the small sock, the private sock, the I've only got two people and it's a part-time job. You know, were there things that we could put in that would address that audience? Um, and certainly we were also, the pro- the challenge and opportunity was we were trying to hit a lot of different different levels. So we were also trying to think, okay, what if you're new to the field? What if this is a college book? You know, what if this is something where you've done IT for a number of years, but you're transferring into cybersecurity and you want to just get that piece that's there, Um, especially because we did have a lot of government um, related sponsors that we've all worked with. You're thinking about people who are suddenly shoved into cyber and had, you know, needed a primer on, on how to even get started with operations and other things. So we purposely tried to keep this wide aperture. But we kept going back to, you know, let's think about something that is more accessible. Let's think about somebody who's newer to this field and works in not a big organization, but is an organization big enough that they're going to have a formal sock. Now, we certainly talk about in one of the strategies, I think it's before we do organization, like all the different kinds of ways that you could start up a sock and something else. But at least for me, that's what I always had in mind was somebody newer into the field, maybe has a little bit of an IT background or, you know, knows technology in some way and who, but who isn't working for the largest organization, isn't working for the smallest organization. Um, but that was, that was kind of my mindset. Now, Catherine Carson, what did you all have in mind? I, I have a, I hold a similar opinion. Um, you know, there's no doubt that the experiences in focus um, you know, the verticals, the sizes, the constraints of, you know, MITRE's sponsor base influenced, our, you know, our focus both in the first and second edition. And there you can see as if you go into the book, you can see like the, the substantial investment we made in addressing different sizes and different industries and whatnot in a bunch of different sections. In the second edition, by, by contrast, you know, one of the things, and I, I thought about this off and on for like, you know, 10 years at Charisma every, every now and again. And then someone from some random part of the world or some random industry would be like, this was so helpful. We like did all this cool stuff. And I'm like, I guess it applies. That's so cool. And I'm not like here to pat anybody on, on the back, not myself included. I'm just saying like, there's a lot of things that seem to resonate and extend. Um, however, we did go out of the way, especially, I think it was, um, you know, in chapter three, talking about, well, how do you really need to think about this different when you're when you're big and small? And I think, you know, um, uh, you know, save us all. Gosh, save us all. If we do a third edition, um, I think we're going to continue investing more in in differentiating that story. So I had a different perspective 
uh, it's interesting because I, I, I now know this is why these conversations we had, I, I came from a smaller, more creative uh, environment, uh, more academic uh, related. And I've worked in the big uh, government socks since, but where I came from was more academia, um, that kind of, you know, Carnegie Mellon, National Laboratory, that kind of culture. Uh, and so we were lean and mean and writing scripts and, you know, trying to figure out how can we cover 60,000 things quickly. Um, so I was usually, uh, so what do we do if it's, there's only one or two persons there? I would bring that up a lot, you know, so what if you don't have 50 people or a hundred people? Cause I don't know, I came from a place we didn't. Um, so yeah, you'll see some of that throughout the book. We tried to cover the gamut. Um, I don't have, I don't love thinking about the large government stuff that I've done <laughs> because I don't think that's the majority of the world, right? Yeah. We'll be back after a quick break. If you're enjoying this episode, then you're undoubtedly interested in building the strongest security operations team that you can. For those who want to go even deeper, did you know that SANS has not one, but two courses that cover security operations centers as well? For the leaders, managers, and directors out there, my co-author Mark Orlando and I offer 551, Building and Leading Security Operations Centers. This course covers building your team, your physical and virtual workspace, getting the right data into your tools, and then focusing on security priorities through everyday execution of important security tasks and building the best SOC team possible. For the technical practitioners out there, my course SEC 450, Blue Team Fundamentals, Security Operations and Analysis, is designed to cover everything you need to jump in being the best SOC analyst that you can be. We cover important data types, SOC tools, security logs, malware, analysis technique, automation, and much, much more. In addition, if you want to prove you can deliver the best on any security team, both courses have an accompanying certification available from GIAC. That's the GSOM for 551 and the GSOC for 450. Check out both courses and free demos available on the SANS website. You can get registered today for an in-person course at one of our many events, or go to On Demand and take either class anywhere at your own pace. Thanks for listening. So the... Uh it sounds like you all kind of, you know, came together, coming out with a, you know, coherent voice, as you had mentioned before, and, uh, you know, produced all this content. But th going through all of it, um, one of the other things I, I definitely wanted to know is like, I know, you know, having written, you know, courses and stuff myself, there's that moment of like, at the start, woohoo, I'm, I'm going to write something, right? And then, you know, it's going up the hill on the roller coaster. And then all of a sudden, you're like, oh, my God, what did I sign up for? <laughs> what am I doing to myself? You know? And it's uh, it's that long, crazy slog, right, through just you know, thousands of hours, right, as you said. Um, what what were you, was there any particular strategies you employed to push your way through kind of the, the bottom of the hill, right, when it's the hardest? Uh, did you set a pace for yourself? Like, how are you consistently hitting deadlines when there's so much material to make over such a long period of time? I'll, I'll start with how it went from first edition, because I think it evolved a little bit. So as I mentioned in the first edition, you know, I just started dumping my brain onto paper and clumps started forming. And, you know, I got to the, you know, the 20 to 24, I don't remember what it was, uh, number of, um, you know, questions we need to ask. And eventually I, I arrived on a structure. And for me at that point, it was like, okay. And I started jumping around. And I was like, oh, I'll work on this section today. No, I'll work on that section tomorrow. I'm like, I work on different, and it become random and I'd never finish anything. And it was, it was, don't do that. Um, <laughs> I, 
I, I, the way I made progress is by, by going linear through the book in order. So I remember what I said and what I didn't and forcing myself, okay, I need to finish, you know, this chapter by a given time or, oh, I've got four hours today. We're going to knock out this section and that, and that kind of thing. Um, it was, it got spicy, uh, (laughs) you know, towards the end getting second edition out the door is we, we kind of nailed down structure, but what's it was like, it's like, okay, shit's leaving the station. I'm going to let Ingrid and, and Catherine talk about that experience. That was, that was fun. <laughs> I, fun. I, think one thing, I think one thing to keep in mind is this team, the three of us really came together. What was it? November, December of 2019. Yeah. So as we all know, by March of 2020, the world was a very different place. Uh, and as I mentioned, um, you know, we had a, a, just a lot of different things going on. And so we, we had schedule. I, I made lots of schedules. They love my schedule. Uh, <laughs> we had schedules uh, and we broke them. We broke our promises to ourselves a lot of times. Um, and then we tried to have grace for every person and just acknowledging like, okay, you didn't get to here today. What can we do to help? How do we get to the next thing? Um, we tried a lot of different strategies. We tried, let's go work independently. Let's get on the phone and collaborate with three of us. Let's two people go off and read it. And the third one reviews. Like for us, it was whatever works that particular week is the route we're going to take. And so I mentioned that we had, you know, people with lead strategies and that's what we're trying to do, but sometimes we pass them off. Sometimes we get into something and just go, I'm at a blockage on this one. I remember one time, Carson, when, you know, I was like, I, I just, I just can't do this. And you're like, okay, let me have it for a night. And he just wrote something that was like a bunch of words, you know, that was just a Carson idea. I'm like, okay, that got me over it. And then I was able to go back in on that strategy and like actually put a bunch of stuff together. And I know Carson, Catherine, you all sometimes would just get on the phone night after night and just go, uh, I think this is the IR chapter. You're just like, okay, we, no, we need to talk okay. again. We need to talk some more. We need to do whatever. So to your point, John, like there wasn't a single strategy. The strategy was don't ever just completely stop. Um, and even when we were having the hardest times, it was like, let's just check in with each other. Let's just talk about it a little bit. Let's just see where we're at. And let's give a little credit here to Ingrid. So we did actually chunk out the chapters and we actually did set up deadlines to, to you know, here's when we'll have the draft. Here's when we'll have an early draft. Here's when we'll have an outline. You know, there were, you know, little mini steps along the way to keep us moving a little bit. Um, part of what threw us off a little bit is what we were trying to do is write and review at the same time. Cause our goal, we all wanted to review each other's work, right? So we'd be writing something and also scheduled to review. So I'd be writing, you know, chapter X and reviewing chapter Y this week. That doesn't work so well because it's like, oh, wait a minute, I can't do both of these at the same time. Um, what to Carson's point, here's the lessons learned. It would be great if you know the order of the book going in. <laughs> <laughs> and you stick with that order of the book because when you write sequentially like that, that's where editing becomes editing becomes a very very large job. If you move complete chapters around, like moving the last chapter to the, the beginning chapter, because then you don't remember what you've already said, and you have to go back and say, "I'm introducing this concept," and then later on you can refer back to it. When it's a 472 page book, it gets hard when you're you know having to rewrite you know where you where your references are. Yes. I might've recommended that we move a strategy around at the end. (laughs) I totally understand. No names. No names. It it, it turned out better. And and so that, that actually 
this brings up, um, I think one of the biggest, uh, the biggest struggles um, that we had, oh goodness, almost at every stage of writing this, but definitely at the end. And, and uh, to go back and, and I'm going to start answering part of one of the questions John asked uh, that we only got to half of, and that was his feedback on the book post release. And that is a scope. Scope was, is always going to be a challenge scope of individual sections of the book and then scope of the whole entire work. And that was one of the questions like we had, we made very deliberate choices early on about certain things. We were like, I'm going to pick a random example, memory forensics. We are not writing a book on memory forensics. You want to learn about memory forensics? We're going to give you some really awesome references on that. And, and we stuck to our guns. Um, and, and then there are other areas where like, oh, wait, I can talk about this. And then there's this and like, oh, and this and that's that. And so one of the, um, the feedbacks that I've received both on first and second edition was, is, oh, you didn't talk about blank. <laughs> um, and, and in fact, I'll share with one random piece of feedback I got recently that's had my, my mind going. And that was, is you didn't, you know, we didn't talk as much about, um, the shared sense of community and operations inside the sock. And I'm like, huh, that's interesting feedback. Even if we did talk about that, did we talk about it enough? Um, and I'm sure we'll go Ingrid and Catherine and I will go have a conversation about like, huh, how do we feel about that? Um, there's always, there's always risk about scope, um, in terms of both when you, when you finish, um, and you know, what do you initially set out to do and how do you structure it? Speech over. <laughs> yeah, a lot yeah, that, of other post um, post feedback we've gotten are, uh, well, this wasn't worded the way I know it. Um, this is not correct. Uh, this is 10 instead of 11. This is four. You know, uh, we, we had a few of those kinds of things, some of them very valid and, and we appreciate it. We're still deciding if we're going to go back and fix some of there. There are some like legitimate things in there that we could go back and fix should we choose. But you have to re re up it with the publication and all of that. So, yeah, I'll, I'll give you I'll give you a random example. There are uh, of of something that is not editorial, but like substantive in nature. There are there are people in the world. I've spoken with them, some some of them very recently who have very strongly held positions about the difference between a C-cert and a SOC. Mm. And in this book as in the first edition, um, we chose to conflate them. And that makes some of the readership very upset. Um, if you're listening to this, I'm sorry, I think. We apologize. Um, you know, there, there, are, there are just, there's this diversity of perspectives. And ultimately, you have to make a decision. In this case, it was one of the most fundamental things to the book. What is a sock? And is it the same thing as a C-cert? Because some people have very strong feelings about that, as I stated. So, um, that is something, you know, that's something we've gotten feedback on about like, oh, the way you define this is totally wrong. Or why didn't you use blank? There's always going to be people who have things to say about that. And I think my counter, my counter to some of this is, hey, look, um, heard and understood, um, you know, ultimately the point of the book was to get knowledge out there. And we just had to kind of pick some definitions and some structure that we felt served as a vehicle um, to tell the story of how to do security operations, incident response, or whatever it is we're calling it tomorrow well. And that's an interesting point that there's been different kinds of feedback. Some of it is fundamentally they don't 
agree with the things that we put in there. And that's a really interesting discussion. I'd love to have those. And some of it is a, mm, yeah, we should have caught that or we could have read that differently or there are some small ones. And this goes back to how we decided to put the book out this time because it's a PDF that's the freely available version. And then we have an ebook and a print version. And if we only had the PDF, that would actually be pretty easy because it would be like, oh yeah, just go you know, into InDesign, change up some files, do another version, slap it up on Miter's website and we're good. But because we have the ebook and the print version, we have to give a lot of thought to if we do another version, what is that going to look like? Um, and this is where Catherine did a, a lot of the work to get us set up with the um, distribution companies. And, you know, we had to do things like getting, um, you know, codes and all kinds of different stuff. And so you really, it's very different to think about doing edits in this space versus just having a PDF or a blog post or something that's sitting on a website um, because each of these are different formats and each of these require, you know, additional information to be put up and published. And, you know, depending on how you want to distribute, because we wanted to make these available through multiple different um, companies, you know, Amazon and Barnes and Noble and everybody else. And so um, that means that you're going with a standard format through a separate company that's helping you to distribute to them. Um, that's what we chose to do. There may be other ways to do it as well. Um, versus just uploading to one of those organizations. So it the editing process and the chance to update becomes a lot more complicated than just putting something up that's, you know, a, a single version. And yeah, let's talk about some of that um, self-publishing stuff. So we're essentially a self-published through MITRE uh, book. So we worked with a company who helped us with the layout. We chose an ebook and um, print. And then, of course, we provide a free PDF on MITRE's website as well. Um, so when we chose those things, you have to have separate ISBN numbers for each of those. So that's yet a different company where you go and you purchase ISBN numbers. You can purchase blocks of them for, you have to have one for each version. In fact, we, someone brought up an audio book uh, to me, guys. So, you know, I think we should do it. I mean, what a fantastic idea. We need a British accent doing an audio book. Right. <laughs> um, I think he's to do it. He's got the radio voice. But yeah, it, yeah. And, and we would need a uh, an ISBN for that as well. So um, there are things like that I learned through the process. Um, the book, there was a company that helps you with all of that stuff up front. I would talk to them early and often if you're going to be self-publishing because they will guide you and give you advice. Do you want to do the ebook? Do you want to? Here's what that buys you. Um, we want it to be free. It's that was a, a, a big conversation, it actually. It was hard to make it free. And I have to maintain it to keep it free with the distributor because the price of paper changes, the price of distribution changes. So I've had to tweak the numbers more than once um, to get it back to, um, you know, zero. Publishers won't if they're not making some money, if it's negative, they're not going to sell your book. They will take it off their their sites. So I learned that one, you know, so uh, understanding that process, having a company and they're not that expensive. I mean, I could afford it myself. It's not, you know, we're, we're talking like a couple thousand dollars to help you walk through how to publish a book, uh, which in the scheme of things is um, for us, you know, affordable. Um, what else did they teach us? Uh, layout. Uh, how do you want to do the numbering? They they could do indexing for us. So if you want to be able to refer back to pages, uh, where's where where do we talk about um, incident response? What pages? And then it'll go through and they can do that for you. 
Uh, we may have gone back and, you know, done some of that of ourselves after we had it done, but uh, you can have all that stuff done. And that's, that's the key is you can do all of this yourself. You don't need to spend that money. Um, there are plenty of, there are great websites out there that will walk you through, you know, what it means to be self-published, how you do it, how you get it on the site. Um, this is one of those places where we were able to work with MITRE and chose to spend a little bit of money to have them kind of jumpstart and help us because we were so new to the field and had no idea how to even get started in this space. Well, yeah, um, little secrets about how, how's your book, how many books would be distributed which distributors, um, would get you more, uh, exposure. Um, how do you do it uh, internationally? Um, we wanted the books all over the world. So how do you do that? You know, all of that, those that, were. That's actually a, a story. I'm going to tell a story for a second about book distribution. So as I mentioned, both, as we mentioned a bazillion times at this point, both editions have been free. And so uh, let's go back. This is the years 20, 2014. And the book is done. And my management was talking to me like, Carson, how many copies do you think we distributed this thing? And I'm like, oh, I don't think I know more than like 200 people or <laughs> like two or 300 copies, I guess. <laughs> they printed 1500 copies. And, and, and you've got like, you've got to understand like, what does 1500 copies of a book look like? That's like three pallets of books. And that like that weighs a lot. And so so these three pallets of books came into in minor. They said, oh, we printed 1500 copies. I'm like, what am I going to do with 1500 copies of a book? I don't even know 200 people. They were gone in a matter of months. And and I think and that's an, and that's an, was in addition to the, you know, the online distribution of the PDF. So what I'm the message I'm trying to send is, 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 you know, uh, your, your perceptions around the audience and the readership for a book may be substantially different as soon as you're published. Um, and it's, it, it would be wise to work with your publisher, work with, you know, a couple people you really trust to figure out like, um, what does that really look like? What do we think it's going to be? The realistic numbers are, because you might be surprised in either direction. <laughs> and you actually don't have to guess as it turns out, because there's this thing called print on demand. So, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I have this little trick going on where I have, um, you know, a, a supply in my office. And what I do is when someone says, hey, can I get, you know, I don't know, 40 copies tomorrow is like, sure, just, uh, you know, I'll buy 40 copies. But meanwhile, you can take the 40 copies I have. So I have these little I could go sell books if I if I need to. <laughs> <laughs> So in, in your experience, which I know is, uh, it seems like self-publishing only, unless there's a book that you wrote that I didn't know about, um, what what is self-publishing, maybe I should say, what is not self-publishing the experience like, and what is it getting you as opposed to going through all the extra effort you did? Uh, if someone were to actually like go to a, a major book publisher and just say, here, my book's done, like, do they take care of a whole bunch more of that? And it's just a lot easier. And obviously, you're, you're probably selling it for a higher price at that point, but um what what extra work do you have to do when you self publish? Is it is it basically everything you just listed there? Depends on your agreement with them. I mean, because you know, we've talked about editing. We haven't even talked about graphics or cover design or any of the other pieces. Like all of that, you know, everything from editing to cover design to graphics to 
uh, formatting to distribution to marketing is something that a publisher may or may not deal with um, and in different levels, depending on the kind of contracts that you have with them. Um, so, and keeping in mind that publishers have different types of books that they're looking for. So it's not like you can just waltz up to, you know, one of the, the publishers out there and say, oh, look, I wrote a book, you know, can you just publish this for me? I mean, it, tech books is a competitive marketplace. You know, they only publish so many years. It's, it's just the same as trying to get any other type of book published. You have to get somebody interested. They have to think it's relevant to their audience. They have to, when you go with a company, they have to think they're going to make a profit on it. You know, we talked about the fact that you authors don't make a profit from books or you make a very small one. Um, but these companies, like they're a company, they're going to want to make a profit. And so this goes back to what do you want to get out of what you're doing? And the self-publishing allows you to put things out that maybe are a little bit different than what you, a company might be looking for. Um, so I would, I would absolutely do it again if I was um, doing it, keeping in mind that if you want to have an impact and you want people to know it, you have to think about your marketing for all of this. Like doing this with MITRE meant we had MITRE behind us. And so, you know, they have a, they have blogs, they have a website, they have, um, you know, Twitter feeds, they have LinkedIn feeds, they have all of these other things where they were able to share this, this with the world. And that helped us to, to get more of an audience. But if you are doing this on your own, um, you're going to have to think about how to get people to even know that you've put a book out there. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's good. I was going to say there's, there's a, a couple things to drill in and on that. One of them is I'd like to emphasize the point around creative control. Um, and I would urge, you know, prospective authors to think about that at several layers. One of them is the scope um, and intent of the book in its totality uh, and all the way down to what individual diagrams look like, what does the cover look like, the font, every aspect. It's a creative work. And by introducing the book in a context where it's going to be sold or gone through a, a channel that is not self-publishing, um, the author is more likely to um, give up some of that creative control. And, uh, and my advice is be clear on what your residual control will be uh, before you invest the time in writing that. Uh, specifically, if uh, there is an intellectual property agreement or contract that comes into force uh, before you start committing um, uh, you know, stuff to paper. And by the way, I'm not a lawyer. This is not legal advice. Um, please uh, contact an attorney who's barred in your region. Is the, uh, I mean, is this something that includes like even the content of the, the photos and everything else? Like, I guess we haven't really touched on that. Is like how, where did the graphic design come from? Oh, that's a fun story. All right. I got another story. All right. Let's go back to first edition for a second. Uh <laughs> So I was like, hey, I have a bunch of security books on my shelf. Uh, and here's all the things that are on the front of them. Castles, ninjas, kanji characters, swords, shields, 
anything references to 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 kinetic warfare, locks, keys, chains. I'm like, I don't want any of that on the book. And uh, through a series of events, um, we came to putting the Red Queen on the front of the book, which was an allusion to the whole Red Queen effect and how socks need to constantly evolve, etc. And then, so that was that. That's history. And then the second edition came rolling around, and I'm like, and that was an interesting conversation that we had. And and there were like there were some people that had some opinions about what should be on the cover, and there were other people who had other opinions about what should be on the cover. And eventually, I think it was was it Ingrid or you and I or Catherine was it you and I? We we're sitting there one night. We're like, what should be on the cover? I give up. So we just got on one of the sites. Uh, that they were like, hey, you can use any of the art from this site. We'll license it. And we we're like, I'm going to type in cyber into this. And what do I get? And and sure enough, up popped the picture that is now on the front of the book, like nearly the top of the list. I'm like, that, we should use that. <laughs> and 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 to an extent, the rest is history. But I think there was probably some convincing that needed to happen. What did I miss? So I think this is... Um... Because we were doing this with Miter, and they did have final control over some went into Miter there. I mean, had they get, opinions throughout, yeah, about yeah. They gave they gave a ton of leeway when it came to content, but yeah. when it came to um, branding and, and the marketing, cover and yeah, the cover and the colors and everything else, they wanted it to match with um, their recent branding. Right, and so the blue and the yellow are the primary colors that they were using, and so um, we we probably spent it, it took us several months Weeks, actually months yeah I mean, we were doing other editing through the content and everything else but between um figuring out the color and figuring out the the color palette and figuring out the graphics on the inside um, we did have a graphic designer from miter that worked with us and, and he was great um, yeah he, he was yeah. he was wonderful yeah. you know again not a cyber person and so what we learned was things that we were able to kind of hand wave between the three of us. We needed to be really, really literal when it came to working with, with him um, because this just wasn't his field. And so he would sometimes say, Hey, I've made something look like this and it looked great, but it didn't convey the same message that we were trying to convey. And so we did do some rounds with them going through and saying, okay, well, this is what we really needed to get to. How do we modify that? Um, and I think I mentioned one of the early episodes, like I was a graphic design major back in college, you know, Carson and Catherine are very creative people. We had thoughts about this. Um, and sometimes he's just like, just tell me what you want. Just tell me what you want to do. But we tried to respect the fact that he is um, really good at his craft as well. And so that was one of the things is whenever we would get something, we're like, oh, that's not what we had in mind. We forced ourselves to step back and say, okay, why did they do that? Does it work? Is it good contrast? How's it going to show up in black and white? Because we did the book in color, but we wanted to make sure if you printed out a page, you could still see it. Um, all of that came into play. And so this was an area where MITRE got very involved and wanted to have some opinions about it. Um, and I actually want to follow up on Car something Carson said about contracts. I am not a lawyer either, um, but do keep that in mind if you are... Um, thinking about writing a book and you work for a cybersecurity company, make sure to have conversations with them about intellectual property and um, what you are allowed to put out and who has ownership for it. And so that was something that even as MITRE employees, we were having conversations with them 
um, you know, about what that would what that would mean for both when we're at MITRE and when we uh, leave MITRE. But anyway, so I think it was interesting that in the be- we had a lot of involvement in the beginning because we wanted to get buy-in from leadership in terms of, yeah, we want you to do this and please go forward. And then we were given a ton of autonomy in the middle to try and figure out how we were going to make this happen. And then a lot of um, emphasis at the end when they were like, okay, this is a product that is coming from our company with our name on it. So we need to make sure that it actually uh, fits their standards. And I should just slip in there. There's a 508 compliance thing that needs to happen with uh, materials. And that makes it so um, those with some disabilities are able to also consume the book. So we went through some of that as well. One of the other things um, beyond all these kind of like just way in the in the detail stuff that people wouldn't expect, you know, lawyers and copyright law and all this other kind of stuff. Exactly. Uh, you know, <laughs> I'm like, clearly like you're, you're getting into something that if, if it's your first time, you have no idea. And there's, there's going to be way more to it than, than anyone expects. Um, is there anything else that was just like a big shocker to you that you're like, oh, I had no idea that's how that worked? Certainly the number of companies that are out there to help folks along. You so say you, you really aren't on your own. I think we we took a lot on ourselves that, that maybe if we just let it go a little bit, we could have had companies helping us um, to do some of it. What about, um, maybe this is a good closing question on this one. Uh, every, every team has, you know, the, the joke is like, there's the brains, the looks, the strength, the, you know, the, the wild card, right? <laughs> Um, you've, you've made reference here to like Ingrid kind of being the one that's organizing and, and did a lot of like the very kind of detailed planning of what was going on. Um, what do you think, uh, were the strengths that held your particular team together? And then if someone wants to write a book and co-author it, what are the ones they should be looking for in general in any team? Well, I think the easy answer is, uh, look for those things that complement you that you don't have, Right. Now, I'm also an organizer, so I, I defer to, to Ingrid when she has super strong emotions about, about, about the organizing. Sometimes she had stronger feelings. Um, I think, uh, so I've been a manager a long time, so I have a lot of the strategic view and I can dip down when I need to. So I was doing some of that up and down and up and down. But wait a minute, we didn't cover the, the concept well or, you know, Carson always had details. He's always very, very detailed on, on what he puts together. Um, I don't know. Thoughts? Uh, I uh, I love this question, uh, John. Uh, I'm also an organizer. So <laughs> <laughs> when we it's were the organizing, most organized book thing, in history. You know, one of us would have an idea, and the other person would be like, "Really?" <laughs> or that's not the way I was thinking about that. Um, Ingrid's got feelings already. I I think I think we arrived uh, in a good place. Um, yeah. Agree. And, and the way, one of the ways I'm going to use an analogy for a second. One of the ways um, that one could argue uh, a car uh, customization or resto mod has been done very effectively is that it looks stock, meaning that um, once the car has been changed substantially, it looks like it was deliberate and, and consistent and had consistent look and consistent finish. And one of the ways that we knew, uh, at least that I knew, uh, I don't want to speak for the both of you. One of the ways that I knew that, um, for example, Ingrid would have done a really excellent reorg on something where I'm like, really? Was once it was done, I'm like, well, that's how it was always done. No, she completely changed it and it was better as a result. 
I'm gonna I'm gonna pause because I have more things to say, but I want to give Ingrid the opportunity to react. <laughs> I think if if I had to think about the one reason it worked for us is we can all be detail oriented. We can all be creative. We can all be strategic. We all like we all have kind of like different amounts in all of that, but we've all got those different pieces. But most importantly, we were all able to check our egos. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. And yeah. I really step back and say, oh, you know what? Yeah, I wrote something, but what you wrote is so much better. Mm-hmm. Or, oh, I liked this, but this is going to work. Or I have a str- this is a place I don't have a strong opinion. So, yeah, go ahead and put down what you wanted to put down. And we were really constantly thinking about what's best for the audience, what's best for the book, how do we move it forward? Yeah. And to me, that was the most important part about this team is that, you know, we were always able to come to to an agreement. Um, it wasn't always that everybody agreed, but we always were able to get to, it, it was never a vote. It was never like, well, two of us said this, so that's what's going to happen. <laughs> um, it was really, no. okay, maybe we had a couple. Wait, there was I, maybe I, one or two. I, you know, I do, I, I will, I'll, I'll pile on to what Ingrid is saying. I, I would, I would venture to say, we haven't talked about it. This is unscripted, by the way. I don't know if you noticed. Um, I would venture to say by the end of the book, we all learned something about security operations. And I think all of us um, came to a different perspective on some aspect of security operations than we did at the beginning of the book. I know I did. Mm -hmm. There was stuff at the end. I'm like, like we would go through a conversation. I'm like, huh, I didn't really think of it that way. Or like, I said that? No, that was wrong. (laughs) Yeah. Now that we mentioned this and I'm thinking back to those days, um, I think each one of us had places in the book we didn't want to compromise on, and we gave that to each other. So I think each one of us has our, no, really, this particular thing I feel super strongly about. And we were willing to back down on other things. So there was this um, sense of um, collaboration, I think, that came together. And the longer we worked together, I think the better it got. Right on. So choosing your battles, having, having a, you know, a checked ego kind of working together and just general teamwork capability. It sounds like was, was the dream team mix, right? Well, yeah, but you also had to feel like, um, there's areas in that book, which is, uh, no, really, this is, I really said this, I, I, I would not back down from something. And I think each one of us has things of that, like that in the book. Right. Certainly. And, and keeping your principles and your own kind of authentic voice in there, especially when it's a, you know, a, a specialty of yours or anything yeah. like that. Yeah. yeah. I want to sure. offer another twist on what you were mentioning, John. I think one of the critical things, one of my many pieces of advice for prospective authors is if you're approaching a book like a technical book like this and you have a story to tell about a complex and nebulous topic, it's really important to bring in people who you haven't just worked with like right now. Don't just write a book who all like, for example, don't write a book about security operations or an aspect of security operations where all of the co-authors have worked in the same sock for five years. You don't have a diversity of experience in that that situation or not perhaps an optimal diversity of experience. You've got to bring different perspectives and different ways. Somebody have, um, you know, kind of per- mastered their art, um, you know, together because they're going to have different perspectives and you're going to tell a better story as a result. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I remember reading something very similar. I think it was in uh, the book, The Psychology of Intelligence Analysis, which I'm sure some of you are familiar with. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the phrases that sticks out to me from the brainstorming area was like quantity leads to quality, right? Quantity of experiences is going to lead to having a yeah. boat of stuff that you can choose from of which you'll be able to pick the best things, right? And uh, it sounds like that was probably a, one of the factors that led to your success as well. So that's awesome. Anything else that we didn't cover that's worth passing on to all of the readers that are now super hyped to write their own book? <laughs> 100%. I think it's probably worth spending a few words on like what happens after you're done. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Actually, I was going to ask about that. Yeah. What, what happens after the button has been pushed and it's released in the world other than, you know, maintaining prices and such like that you've already mentioned. But Which was other, May 5th, 2022. <laughs> I remember the date, the button but we got pushed. Right on. Nice. Uh, well, there's a couple things, um, you know, I think that again, the, so the book is a vehicle, the book is a tool to achieve an outcome. And that outcome usually has something to do with spreading information. So, you know, people who are listening to this, um, you know, recognize a webcast as another way to carry a message. Um, you, many of you listening or watching this have seen or heard, Ingrid, Catherine, and I, you know, speak about this book um, at a number of, of different um, venues, including SANS. Um, so one of the things, particularly with in, in technical books like this is, you know, do you want to also um, have a presentation or a training class or what have you um, that goes along the work? So how do you complement that? Um, you know, you might work with a company uh, maybe the maybe the book you wrote was was actually the intellectual property is owned by a, a company. Um, by the way, uh, I'll interject uh, real quick as a short tangent. Um, the book is technically Miter's, uh, folks. Mm -hmm. Miter owns the intellectual property. It's been it's been licensed, you know, back to Ingrid and I. And I'm always I always we have to say that every time we talk about it. It's it's part of the agreement is that intellectual property is is owned by Miter and on um, you know as produced under U.S. government funding. Thank you, MITRE. Um, thank you, taxpayers. Um, <clears throat> so one of the things you want to think about before you hit that button is uh, what's your marketing plan if you have one? What is your message to get that, that message out there? How do you continue that momentum forward? Um, there's a big piece of that. And there's an also big piece I'll pause on after a few minutes. And that is um, talking about how does that become part of your own brand and how do you own that message years later? Yeah, for sure. And that's an interesting point. We're talking about this from an aftermarket perspective, but we also did some thinking before pressing the button. Um, one of the things that was brought up to us is, you know, did we want to give early reader copies to people? Did we want to try and get quotes from others in the industry to use on the back cover? Did you want to... Um, even thinking about when MITRE was doing the release, they were backtracking and saying, okay, what events are out there? Where are we going to actually announce this? How does it fit within everything else that's on their schedule that they're trying to talk about? Um, how do they, you know, want to do their social media? Um, and how do we want to do our own social media to support this? So there's actually a lot that you want to do before you put the book out um, to set it up. So, you know, and a lot of the algorithms, obviously, for downloads and bookstores and everything else are built around you know, how quickly you can gain momentum. It's just like podcasts, you know, how, how fast do um, people pick up and are interested in this material and that or change your, your search order rankings and everything else. 
Um, I think we had a built-in audience through MITRE. We had a built-in audience through Carson's first edition. Um, lots of things that were kind of making it so that people knew that this was going to be coming out, but definitely give some thought to that and how, um, and how much you want to do to sustain it over time. You know, we did do a couple different talks over kind of the first six months or so, nine months. And then we thought we were done. We actually had conversations and said, okay, yep, this is going to be the last one. Um, we're ready. You know, we feel like we've had a good run. We don't need to do something else. And then it just, we were having some conversations here with, with John and blueprint and we're like, Oh, there's, there's one more life left in this story. Like, you know, we can, we can spend some time and we can do something else. Um, but it, you really, you have to think about once you press publish, you are not done. Um, if you want it to have legs, if you want it to actually go somewhere. And so uh, add on to your thousand hours uh, and just add a few more so that you can do some marketing. Yeah. But, and uh, we did some um, little condensed materials. They wanted to hand out at other things. Um, Carson had mm-hmm. bookmarks from the first round. So there's little, you know, like the 10 strategies on a bookmark. Um, there's one pagers that are out there. Um, so if you're doing that yourself, um, I, I could now do that myself, but it's kind of nice to have something like MITRE or a marketing machine behind you kind of helping get the message out at, at various events, you know, and hand out, here's a condensed, here's a 10 pager on, on the 11 strategies, right? <laughs> I'll actually offer, I'm going to put a number on this. I can't wait to hear Ingrid and, and Catherine and John's reactions. I would actually argue you need to be thinking about you're kind of like your marketing and messaging campaign 12 months before you publish. Here's why I, I say 12 months. Think about the lead time for the major conferences you want to hit. You need to mm-hmm. put together your submission to that conference and their lead time. And a, and a number of the conferences in our, in our industry have a greater than six month lead time to submit. So, all right, so you've backed up, you've got that window for that. And then, and, and then, um, you know, the time it takes you to prepare and do any kind of release for your submission and think about conferences that might be, you know, just before your release. You don't want to wait, you know, 11 months from your published date to hit the conference you really wanted to hit. Um, and and in fact, we had conversations. This was like, you know, the six months leading up to the actual pressing the button. We're like, we're almost there. We're like, should we talk about conferences? Ah, oh, shoot. We just missed this one. Oh, no. Um, so be thoughtful about that 12 months in advance. And I will observe, however, um, there were two, we were accepted to, we put a whole bunch in before it was published. Um, and I think we got into like maybe two, um, after suddenly they were reaching out to us. So, um, it shifted once the book was actually out there. So I, you know, you can't be discouraged by if you don't get chosen, you know, because it isn't published yet. It did go up significantly after it was published. I will note that um, some feedback we got from conference organizers is don't advertise the book. Yeah. They actually are not excited about the fact that you've published a book. Yeah. That's great as a reference or something else, but they're looking for something different. They're looking for a story. They're looking for a particular new technique. Like we talked about at the beginning, like a book is evergreen. A book has more things that are going to be, you know, over time. A lot of conference organizers are looking for the new and the latest and the up-to-date, and they're not looking for an overview of a set of material that you've put out there. Mm-hmm. So definitely keep in mind the audience for the conferences. We we shifted tactics over time we in did. terms of what we included mm-hmm. and how we talked about the book and the strategies 
to move away from talking about the book and the strategies to talking about a strategy or a set of strategies that we thought were relevant to that conference. Oh, and there happens to be a book behind the scenes if you'd like to go download that as well. Yeah, try to make it fresh and, you know, um, new. Yep. Um, there, there's a, and there's a, an important aspect of that, of that I haven't yet mentioned, um, and actually is related to the fact that I routinely and as often as I can say, hey, it's free. Really, it's free. Um, and that is a, some conference will straight up bounce you if you think, if they think you're, you're pitching something, something commercial. Um, and, you know, when you say to somebody, we wrote a book uh, and it's free, they're like, yeah, whatever. It's probably trash. Um, <laughs> right. And it says zero dollars on the back. So it's worth every penny. Um, so, you know, that's that's an additional consideration. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I've, de- I've definitely seen, you know, the the kind of things you've, you've mentioned, right. Bring bring a course to bear, right. There's a lot of work on the, on the front end, just narrowing down what even you're going to create and then making the whole thing is tons of time. Uh, and as you said, right, I was going to totally agree on, on all of that. Like after you release the thing, there's tons of work beyond that, uh, just kind of pushing and making it happen. Right. Cause just because you hit publish doesn't mean the world's going to know about it. Right. And so, uh, you know, a lot of times we tell authors this like, hey, writing the class is the easy part. Most of the work's in front of you when you hit publish. <laughs> you're like, oh, God. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, yeah, anytime you're creating a, a living document or something you intend on updating, like it's it's a lot of work and it becomes its own its own job. But, uh, you know, ultimately one that I think most people find rewarding. It's just in the, the heat of writing it. You're kind of like, oh, boy, <laughs> no doubt. Yep. <laughs> All right. Well, with that, uh, I think that probably wraps us up at a good point there. Um, Any final thoughts before we sign off here on season four? I'm still going to write a book, even though we said all we said just now. (laughs) Still going to write it. I hope you do. Yeah, I don't I don't think I'm done either. Uh, But uh, uh, if I had a dollar for every time someone in the first year after I wrote first edition said, so when's the second edition coming out? I'd be a rich person. Um, uh, so, so yeah, I'm going to go ahead and predict third edition, probably not a 2023 endeavor. Um, but I don't, <laughs> I don't think you've heard the last from, from me either. Um, I'll save more, a few more comments after Ingrid reacts. <laughs> I just, you know, one of our strategies was communicate, collaborate, and share, and there are more words into it. But it really comes down to um, that strategy was born out of the fact that we put this this book together. And we really all passionately believe that that's something you have to do to be part of this community and to help others. And we've had so many people that have helped us over the years. And so despite all the challenges and the years of dedication and everything else you'd have to put into it, consider writing a book. If you've got a passion for it and you've got an interest and you've got something you want to put together, it doesn't have to be a, you know, tome with 500 references and what we did. Like there are so many great books out there. I still love a good paper book. I guess I kill trees. Me too. Um, but, you know, there's there's still a marketplace for it. There's still a need for it. Um, like Catherine and Carson have said, maybe you, if you haven't done any kind of writing, do some writing first, you know, do some blogs, do some other types of posts. Um but then just do it. Like I, I want to read other people's books. So I want other people to jump into it and read and uh, write stuff. Ing- Ingrid put, uh, took a lot of the words out of my mouth, read uh, my brain as she and Catherine often do. Um, you know, go, 
go engage. I think that's my number one advice today is, is find a way to engage with the community and, and give back. One of the things that makes the cybersecurity community, I think, amazing, unique is, is um, uh, it's vibrant and it's diverse and it's growing really, really fast. Uh, and we have a lot uh, to offer each other. So, you know, your first salvo or your second or your 10th may not be a book and may not be a, a presentation. It may not be traditional media, but, you know, find find ways um, to engage when you, you know, you think you've got something to offer back. Yep, absolutely. Give the uh, give the knowledge back to the community. We all get better. We can uh, get that exponential growth Catherine was talking about, right? That's right. And I want to read other people's books. Yeah, as do I. Fantastic. All right. Well, I think we can wrap it up then. Uh, to close it up, I will say, you know, a big thank you to all of you. Uh, as I said before, this was a, a monster of a season, a lot of time commitment. Uh, and as I also mentioned, I believe at the beginning of this, you know, this this the first edition of the book was absolutely something I was reading in the style that you all had mentioned, right? Um, I was, you know, fairly new back then, like trying to pick up what was going on, what should I be, you know, paying attention to, getting some validation on some thoughts and all that. It absolutely steered my career and, and I'm sure had a significant place in, in getting me to, you know, what I'm doing now. So, um, you know, the second edition saw that came out, read that, and I'm sure that that's going to do the same uh, for people all over the world. So, uh, Thank you so much for making an amazing resource for everyone. And we really, really appreciate your time on Blueprint. 